You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Feedburner VP Business Development Rick Clow goes on the record online. Assuming that we can have standardized metrics much like broadcast television and radio have when it took television and radio decades to get to those standards is probably a little aggressive. Um, That said, we would like to think and we have reason to believe that many commercial organizations as well as independent podcasters and, and bloggers are relying on our information to represent that to advertisers, and advertisers are, are using that information to base advertising decisions on. And thank you for downloading another episode of On the Record Online, the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. We do in-depth, one-on-one interviews with journalists from the mainstream media, as well as, from time to time, interviews with bloggers, podcasters, and newsmakers about how technology is changing the way organizations communicate and the way people consume media and information. My name's Eric Schwartzman. I am the founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation. We help organizations integrate the web into their marketing communications and public relations initiatives. I am also personally and professionally fascinated at how technology is shaking up the world of marketing and advertising and promotions and PR. Uh, We are going to uh, do a series of podcasts on podcast measurement and building a business case for podcasts. Clearly, a lot of us who listen to podcasts and and who chat amongst ourselves are excited about the format. We're jazzed up. We know it's great. But we're often put into situations where we have to communicate uh, the benefits of podcasting to others uh, so that they can get behind initiatives and projects that would allow them to add podcasting to their marketing mix. And so what we're going to do uh, in these next few episodes is focus really uh, on the nitty-gritty behind Uh, some of the qualitative benefits um, with respect to the numbers. Uh, How many people do podcasts reach? How do you assign a value to audience size? Um, What are the best uh, models that uh, podcasters should be using when approaching uh, advertisers? Should they be using CPM? Should they be using a a cost per click? Um, Should they be valuing uh, the the uplift value of a podcast uh, on a brand over a matter of years. What are the answers to these questions? And to help us explore that today, we're going to talk to Rick Clow. He's the Vice President of Business Development at FeedBurner. Many of you know FeedBurner very well. They manage a huge number of feeds and uh, help podcasters track listenership of those feeds or at least downloads of those feeds and uh, for blogs as well. Um, if you uh, are interested, some of the other uh, upcoming um, uh, interviews in this series of, of podcasts on podcast measurement are going to be um, Gregory Gallant from Radio Tale. We have Michael Dunn uh, from Hearst Interactive. Uh, we're going to talk to David Sifri uh, of Technorati. Uh, we are going to talk to um, uh, someone over at uh, the Chronicle uh, from the digital media side, and we are also working on um, – uh, spokespeople with uh, Nielsen Media Research, Arbitron, 
and the Audit Bureau of Circulation. So what I'm what I'm trying to do here is put together a collection of interviews uh, from people on the new media side and on the traditional media side uh, to help you sort through uh, the issues confronting people who are considering integrating podcasting as a format into their marketing mix. Um, and I guess uh, the podcast would also have value for publishers, um, individual publishers or, or corporate larger publishers who are uh, trying to figure out how to value um, the advertising space inside their podcasts. So, um, little housekeeping. If you would like to subscribe to this podcast and you're not currently subscribed, you can get it at www.ontherecordpodcast.com. Uh, these podcasts on podcast measurement are leading up to a presentation I'm going to do at Podcast Expo on building a business case for podcasts and podcast measurement. Um, and I'm going to do my darndest to try to get a paper out, a research paper, um, at that, you know, at, either at that time or before that time, uh, which will collect uh, and summarize everything that I learned through these podcasts here. Um, I guess that's about it. Oh, last thing I should mention, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you on a new rig. It is a, a, a studio that's actually um, being built in our offices in Los Angeles, and it's not 100% up to speed yet. So uh, I think you're hearing some background noise from the fan on the computer. We're going to swap it out with a quieter fan. Um, some other upgrades we're going to make here too, but uh, bear with us. Uh, that's, that's why you're hearing that background noise. Um, so now uh, we're going to play for you uh, the ad that we always play about, uh, about iPressroom and what it's all about so you can learn about uh, the business behind uh, this podcast, you know, how, we, how we're able to pay for the time it takes to, to make these podcasts uh, is through the business of iPressroom. So let's hear about iPressroom um, right now. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from iPressroom. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom. Tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Rick Clough, thanks so much for joining us. Eric, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, you guys are obviously uh, experts at the measurement of RSS feeds. Um, tell us a little bit about what FeedBurner is and how it works. Sure. We're a, we're a company based in Chicago. We're the largest company of our kind. We manage feeds for publishers of all kinds, whether that publisher is an individual blogger, a podcaster, or a, a, a major media organization like Reuters or USA Today. And when a company runs a feed through FeedBurner, they're typically looking for a couple of things. They're looking for an understanding of how large their audience is, how many subscribers to their feeds they have. Uh, and then they're also looking for an understanding of how their content is consumed, how many uh, times are the items in their feed read, how many clicks back to the website are generated. If they are a podcaster, they might want to know how many times their podcast episodes are downloaded. And once they have that understanding, they're much smarter about knowing where to focus their energy in terms of developing further content or potentially branching out as they look at expanding their audience. Now, there's a good deal of variation between stats that are available from you and some of the other companies out there that provide stats. Why is that? Why, uh, why do the numbers vary so greatly from one service to the next? 
Well, I think when you talk about stats, that's a that's a very broad um, space, and and I think given this our focus, which is particularly on feed statistics, uh, we think we understand them better than anyone else. Uh, we certainly manage more feeds than anyone. We manage currently uh, close to 400,000 feeds for a little over a quarter million publishers uh, worldwide, and more than 20 million people a day see content delivered from FeedBurner. Um, as a result, we have, we think, the best understanding of what that activity looks like and how it should be represented in terms of knowing who your subscribers are, how many there are, what they're doing with your content, uh, and, and so forth. Explain to us, if you will, just uh, from, uh, in, in a general sense, how does it work? How do you actually measure how many people are subscribing to a feed? Sure. Well, there's really two different mechanisms that are significant when understanding feed activity. One is the variety of web-based services that are out there. Blog lines is one. NewsGator Online is another. My Yahoo, certainly a big one. Um, and those typically will access a feed on a regular basis on behalf of some number of subscribers. So we may see one hit an hour from Yahoo, and they may have a million subscribers to, to your feed. The opposite of that are the desktop or client-side applications that will hit feeds on a regular basis, every half an hour, every hour, every two hours, but do so only on behalf of one person. And applications like that might be, for example, the, the aggregators built into uh, Firefox, Firefox Live Bookmarks, or into Internet Explorer 7. And those applications are going to show up differently because they're going, to, they're going to generate a lot of hits to the feed and yet only represent one person. So our job is to understand how to interpret the web-based stats and be able to pull out how many subscribers there are when the feed hits are predictable and, and maybe once an hour. On the other hand, it's also looking at the client-side applications and understanding how to interpret 24 hits from the same IP address at the same interval between hits being one person, whereas 72 hits from different IP addresses uh, and different polling intervals might be five people. And we take all of that raw data uh, combined with some tracking information that we embed into the feed for our publishers, and then we represent back to the publishers uh, the, the summary of all that information so that in a very easy interface they can see how many subscribers they have, what they're doing with their content, and so on. Now, obviously, in the business of television, there's a difference between your clearance and your actual rating. Your clearance, at least in syndicated television, would refer to the number of markets that your program's available in, and the rating would be the number of people actually watching the program. So how do you, how do you distinguish between downloads and actual plays? Well, there's no way using MP3 files to know whether a, a file has ever been played. So we don't, we don't provide that information because there's no way to capture it. Our job is to know whether or not a file has been downloaded. And I would suggest that that's closer to, in your TV example, the actual views than just the clearance. Because what you've got here are people who've actually expressed an interest in the content and their computer has taken the time to download it. So instead of just saying that, you know, I get HBO at my house, but I'm not currently in my house, it's like, well, my TV tuner has tuned into HBO, 
I may not actually be on the couch because it's TiVo tuning in on my behalf. But the fact that my TV was tuned to that channel for that period of time is much like iTunes downloading your podcast for me and then making it available for me to listen. Um, so at a, at a high level, we're going to tell you what's possible to tell you, which is that we download the file. Um, anybody that uses the MP3 standard, that's going to be the limit of what they're able to get uh, unless they either have their listeners download separate applications, which most listeners won't want to do, uh, or you can use a proprietary file format. Um, Audible, for example, has a service geared to uh, publishers who want very specific information about how many times their files have been downloaded and played and paused and rewound. And that's something Audible can provide. But within the MP3 file format, you're, you're limited by what you can collect. You know, it's a great distinction that you make, the idea that uh, if somebody seeks out your content, it's, it's more likely that they're going to consume it than if they have it available on some sort of multi-channel service in their home. Um, right. But, but what I wonder is, um, what about, say, the business of, like, partial downloads or, or partial, partial listens? I mean, is that – if someone starts to download a podcast – um, and then they don't continue. They, they, for some reason, they, they, they get interrupted. Would, would you count that as a partial, or would you count that as a full download? We're currently capturing the fact that the download has started. We, we are not capturing successful completion or, or otherwise. Okay. So, so taking on uh, off of the point that you just made about that if somebody wants your content, more likely that they're going to listen to it, how then do you value your audience? Well, I think that's really up to the podcaster. That's not a that's not a metric we are calculating on behalf of a podcaster, nor is it a direction right now I see us going in. Which is, our job is to uh, evaluate and analyze how big is the audience, what are they doing, which applications are they using, what the podcaster chooses to do with that, whether they choose to then go to a sponsor and say, I have a thousand subscribers, I produce three episodes a week. Um, and this is my trend, that it's going up 20% a month. Um, and they choose to then maybe sell that on a CPM basis, may, maybe sell it on simply a time basis. But, you know, $1,000 a month will get you sponsorship of my content. Um, that's really between the podcaster and, and, and the advertiser or sponsor at that point. That's not a, it's not a discussion that, that we're having with our users. I understand. So, so what I'm going to ask you now, you, you obviously have a significant amount of perspective over the business of social media. You were at Social Text prior to joining FeedBurner. Um, you know, you've been in this business for a while. So I'd like to ask you, if you would, to take off your FeedBurner hat and tell us uh, personally, how do you think that the audience should be valued? I mean, does the CPM model work? Should it be cost per click? And where do you see us headed? Well, I, you know, I, I think it's it's a great question, and I think it's I'll, I'll take my feed burner hat off and put my lawyer hat on, since I'm a, a non-practicing lawyer, and tell you that the answer really depends. I mean, I think that cost per click really is 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 a model that is based on an assumption that people sought particular content out and are trying to act on it, which makes a ton of sense in search, right? If I go into a search engine and I type in a, a query, I'm going to act on the results. The, the information I'm looking for is not contained on the page. The page only contains pointers to the places that have the information I want. Now, an ad that may be tailored to provide me similar information 
makes a ton of sense that I'm likely to click on that. In a feed, in a podcast, those are consumption-oriented media where the information you want is being delivered to you. You don't need to take any subsequent action in order to get it uh, or, or act on it, for that matter. So in, with respect to feeds, uh, whether they're podcast or text, I think CPM tends to be a much better model because it rewards the audience and the delivery of the content, whereas uh, search-driven activity tends to reward the transaction itself. Um, and, and, and so I think different models are appropriate there. With regards to some of the other trends that we're seeing, sites like Wikipedia and other, other collaborative sites that are, that are encouraging um, user creation of content um, as much as the consumption. Um, I, I think a different model is in order. Uh, whether it's CPM or not, I haven't really given that angle much thought. Um, but I think you're seeing advertisers try and become part of the conversation. Uh, Ford has made a big splash over the last couple of weeks working with, with companies like us and, and others to really try and get themselves close to the conversation that's happening about Ford um, and, and basically starting the process off by admitting that they've made some really pretty terrible mistakes over the last several years in terms of uh, fuel consumption and building cars that their consumers are interested in and inviting feedback. Um, now, I don't think you value that on a CPM basis, right? I think that the measurement of the success of that particular campaign, which I think is really a bellwether for other similar campaigns we'll see over the next couple of years, is measured in years because it's going, going to be measured in brand uplift over a significant period of time. And, and simply saying that a million people saw the ad last week, now that's not really going to be meaningful. Knowing whether those million people then translated into people who talked to friends about what they saw or might have been more receptive to an ad that comes from Ford down the line, those are the things that are going to measure, uh, that are going to matter. And how Ford chooses to measure those I think requires a much longer view than the specific what happened today, what happened next week, what happens you know, a month from now. But, but clearly, we live in a world today where Nielsen and Arbitron are dictating uh, what marketing dollars get spent where. I mean, that's still where we are today. So what's well, it going to take? I, I, what's it going to take? I might argue that a little bit. You know, I, I think it is where we, we, we were and, and even to a limited extent are today. But look at the fact that, you know, the upfronts in the TV market uh, were sold very differently, and you've now got some of the TV networks having to find different ways to get advertisers to spend their dollars because TiVo and other DVRs have had such an impact in how people consume even the televised content. So the Nielsen numbers matter less because people are shifting their consumption beyond the broadcast time to a time-shifted time, or they're going online, right? ABC showing me Lost. I watched the last three episodes of Lost on my computer because I was traveling and didn't want to wait until I got home to see it on my TiVo. So you, you, if you guys then, so, so clearly uh, you make some very good points. You, you think about a service like iTunes, and clearly they're obviously managing feeds or, or allowing you to uh, distribute feeds through their uh, aggregation service. Uh, they also, in many cases, I'm told, are caching those feeds. Uh, that's actually not true. That was that was true on on the launch of iTunes, because they rightly recognized there would be a potentially destructive impact 
by them unleashing hundreds of thousands of people on feed providers who weren't ready to handle all that traffic. So in the first few weeks, and in some cases the first few months of iTunes launch, they were actually caching a lot of that content uh, to help some, some publishers get over the hurdle. Um, it worked in most cases. There were some, some servers that were still uh, negatively impacted by the iTunes launch. Um, as, as of my last conversation with the iTunes team from probably a month or two ago, I think there's one or two feeds left that are still being cached, and that's it. Well, seeing as how, um, whether they're caching them or not, are they counting downloads as well? Uh, no, they're not, because the way iTunes works, um, iTunes is really two separate things. There's the iTunes Music Store, which is a, a, an Internet-based site, which is accessed through the iTunes client. So those are the two different pieces of the puzzle. The iTunes Music Store contains a whole bunch of information that Apple is aware of, but the iTunes client does not. Things that happen within the iTunes client are not reported back to Apple in any kind of centralized way. So Apple has no insight into how many downloads of podcasts are happening. Well, then how do, they, they, how do they figure that list of the top 100 podcasts? That's the number of people who have subscribed ever, and there may be some algorithms they run. I, I don't have any visibility into the inner workings, but it's all based on the initial creation of the subscription, which the music store itself is aware of. Subsequent unsubscriptions from that podcast are invisible to Apple, and so they can't take that into account. That, those top lists do not represent active subscribers. They represent the number of people who have subscribed ever to those particular shows. And there may be some, some trends that they're running so that they look for most subscribers in the last 30 days, for example. I, I don't know the particulars, but I do know that they have no ability to see what happens in the iTunes client itself. They only have visibility to what happens in the music store. So I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is in an analog world um, where broadcasters are pushing out content, uh, services like Arbitron and, and, um, and, uh, and Nielsen obviously are critical because that's how they can size their audience and uh, assemble their inventory for advertisers. But mm -hmm. in the digital universe... It seems like you know you can track the number of downloads if you're the publisher, and certainly um, in this case, Apple is counting the number of people that are subscribing. So I guess w walk us through where FeedBurner fits in in the big picture. I mean, are you guys you think ultimately the next Nielsen or the next Arbitron? And if not, you know where where do you guys fit in? Well, I'll, I'll let the marketplace decide, you know, wh whether or, or by what degree we are the next anybody. I think, you know, where we differ, for example, to the first question from Apple, is that Apple has visibility into what happens in iTunes. Apple doesn't have visibility into what happens at my Yahoo or Bloglines or NewsGator. We are a publisher service where we act on behalf of publishers to manage their content so that we can tell them where all of their activity comes from. We did a, a big podcast market report back in April, and one of the, the things that we reported on at the time was that iTunes in the podcast space represents about 60% of the consumption of podcast content. Now, that's a lot. That's certainly better than half, but it's not 100%. And if you are a publisher that are producing podcasts and you want the, 
broad market to be consuming your content, then nearly, uh, you know, better than two, better than one third of your content is consumed somewhere other than iTunes. And it behooves you to understand where that consumption is, how it's happening, how they're finding your content. And we want to make sure that publishers are aware of that. So our goal is to work explicitly on behalf of the publisher to make sure that anything that can be discovered or told about the consumption of their content, that we not only measure it, but then make it easily reportable for them as well. Rick, in the... In the years that you've been involved with uh, this company in social text and vertical markets and interface software and LexisNexis, what, if anything, surprises you about what we're seeing now with the emergence of podcasts and blogs and social media? Well, we're in a very big transition over the last several years where it wasn't that long ago that your only options, your only choices for um, where to go for information. There were a couple of newspapers, there were a couple of websites, there were a couple of TV stations, a couple of radio stations. Um, today, the number of blogs is into the tens of millions, some of whom have tremendously high traffic. Um, Buddy Mine runs a political web blog that gets more visitors per day than almost every newspaper in the country gets. Um, when you're getting that kind of traffic, um, you have a tremendous opportunity as the publisher to reach an audience that before was held in the hands of just a few organizations. So we're seeing a flattening of that model so that anyone who wants to speak has an opportunity to do so. And, you know, four years ago, that guy had no audience. No one knew who he was. No one was listening to him. Today, he's mentioned he was on Meet the Press a couple of months ago. Um, th- that transition is, is huge, and I think it's un unprecedented in, in, the, in the media landscape. So when you think about what that means for society, I mean, we're, we're seeing new voices come to the table, we're seeing new distribution mechanisms take hold, uh, that's what podcasting is, that's what, uh, that's what blogging is. Uh, it's exciting for me to see, and, and maybe one of the th- things that's been surprising has been the speed with which the the commercial media have adopted these techniques to try and ensure that they're delivering their information to their audiences in ways that their audiences want. Um, What that tells me is that the technology is empowering the consumer to exert more uh, influence over the producers of the content, which is, is from, from my perspective as a consumer, a great thing. It means that if I want... Uh, to get Meet the Press on my iPod, now I can. And that's a, that's a great thing. It used to be that if you didn't watch Meet the Press at 10 a.m., you didn't get to see it, and you could only read the snippets in the press. Well, now I have it on my iPod, and I'll probably listen to it along with some other programs when I'm on the airplane later this afternoon. Now, one of the things I continuously read in research reports about new media and their acceptance among mainstream marketers is uh, the acknowledgement that there is a lack of standardized metrics and that until we can get standardized metrics, uh, this podcasting is not going to take off. Now, you guys have metrics. Why can't that, those metrics be the metrics that you sit down at the table with the advertiser with and negotiate the rate? What's missing? Well, I- I think we're seeing a lot of our users do exactly that. Now, it, podcasting is not is just now two years old. 
So assuming that we can have standardized metrics much like broadcast television and radio have when it took television and radio decades to get to those standards, is probably a little aggressive. Um, that said, we would like to think and we have reason to believe that many commercial organizations as well as independent podcasters and, and bloggers are relying on our information to represent that to advertisers, and advertisers are, are using that information to base advertising decisions on. Um, so whether it becomes standardized and it gets somebody's seal of approval right now is not of any particular concern to me because we're, we're marching ahead with our business and, and our users, all 250,000 of them, are, are quite happy with the information that we're able to provide them. Um, whether that becomes ingrained in the marketplace over the next few years, uh, sure, I'd love to see that happen, but I'm not concerned. I don't think it's slowing us down right now. Final question before we wrap this up. What generalizations uh, might you be able to make about the adoption um, from a subscriber standpoint of video versus audio podcasts? Are you differentiating between the two? And if so, what trends are you seeing? We don't do too much differentiation. Uh, from our perspective, a, a, a feed is either a text feed or a media feed, whether it's audio or video is immaterial to us. Um, video is certainly becoming more popular as the, the, the means of production of video get less expensive and bandwidth gets less expensive. It's easier to transmit 20, 30, 40 megabyte files. Um, that said, I think one of the most popular places where podcasts get consumed is in the car, right, as people are driving to and from work or on the train. And those things typically, those, those are areas where <laughs> if you're not the driver, you can certainly be watching video. It's kind of hard to be watching a video podcast when you're behind the wheel. Um, so I think there, just like there continues to be a big market for radio, I think there will always be a big market for audio podcasts. Um, and, and while we certainly see quite a few video podcasts running through FeedBurner as well as, as those that don't, um, I, I don't think that one that they're mutually exclusive. I think, well, I think well, but the other thing we know both. is we know that more than half, or at least this this was the case uh, with the last research that I read, more than half of all podcasts are consumed on the desktop. Interesting. And and so if you look at the just the sheer numbers of um, uh, consumer generated content uh, that's getting downloaded on sites like YouTube, it just seems to dwarf the number of downloads uh, that even the most popular audio podcasts are getting. Um, interesting. I hadn't thought about that, so I, I don't know that I have a strong opinion one way or the other. I think that there's no question that there's a market for video. YouTube has done a great job demonstrating that. Um, I think that certainly what we've seen among podcasts, I mean, the number of evolution of dances on YouTube is, is just a handful, which is to say videos that have been viewed tens of millions of times. Um, most of the other videos on YouTube are viewed dozens of times um, with a handful of very popular ones. Um, that long tail distribution curve looks very similar to most of the other media we maintain, whether it's audio podcasts, whether it's text feeds, where there are a few feeds that have tremendously high subscriber base and then a lot of feeds that have low subscriber base. So 
I, I think it's it's probably a fairly common uh, curve that applies to most media. Um, whether we see video become the predominant delivery mechanism and audio become a, 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 a much smaller counterpart. Right now, I don't see evidence to suggest that'll be the case. But, you know, as with everything, this stuff is so new. Podcasts themselves didn't exist 25 months ago um, that it's, it's, it's exciting to be in the middle of it. Um, the, only, the only truism here is that what we know today will be probably rather useless in about six months. Rick Clow, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Eric, my pleasure again. Thanks so much. This is a lot of fun. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.